Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Acts. Look with me in Acts chapter 19. We're continuing to learn from first followers of Jesus as we explore the book of Acts. This series of walking through the book of Acts is, is called First Followers because we have been learning from these, these first followers of Jesus what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus. What does it look like to be a, a disciple of Jesus? I want you to imagine someone that you love is in bondage. They're held captive to something. Held captive to something that they have voluntarily submitted to again and again. And they think it's the answer to their fears and anxieties. And it brings them a sense of power and control. This something could be drugs, it could be sex, it could be the influence of a person or a belief system. Whatever it is, it's ruining their lives. You see it. They don't. It's heartbreaking. Acts 19 is the story of magical, religious, and cultural powers ruining people's lives. And what happens when these powers come face to face with the extraordinary power of Jesus Christ. Let's read here in in Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there, were about, there were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way uh, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, he he leapt on them. He leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord was of Jesus was highly exalted. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. 
And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We'll stop there. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word, the truth of your word, the truth of your son would prevail mightily in this place. That we too would find uh, ourselves in a place of surrender before Jesus. That we would encounter the extraordinary power of Jesus today. Amen. Three things I pray we see here, church. One, there's surrender. God's power received. Two, there is conflict, clear conflict. God's power displayed over every other power. And three, there is protest. We didn't read about it yet, but we will. There is a fight to hold on to inferior power and imaginary control. So number one, surrender. God's power received. Before I get into the text, I want to just give you a little... um, background for the city of Ephesus. Paul has arrived in this great city of Ephesus. It's located on the western side of what is uh, modern, modern day Turkey. It's a beautiful coastal city. It's an influential city of his day. It's a commercial center. It's a political center. It's the seat of the Roman government for Asia Minor. It's a religious center. This is home to Artemis, the Greek goddess the, or the Roman goddess of Diana. This is the mother goddess of fertility and reproduction, power connected to the heavens and to the earth. Her temple is massive, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The festival to Artemis or to Diana was celebrated with wild orgies and partying. Ephesus had a reputation as a center for learning and the practice of magical arts. So the phrase Ephesian writings was commonly used to refer to documents containing spells. That's the background. And Paul, as he enters the city, he finds some disciples. And at first, we don't even know who these disciples are. Who who are they disciples of? Until he begins to ask a series of questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Does that seem like an odd question to you? I mean, at first it might. But followers of Jesus are spirit people. Followers of Jesus are filled and empowered with the Holy Spirit, with God the Spirit. And so these men, we find, are disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. So John the Baptist was the voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Lord. And then here comes Jesus on the scene. John the Baptist was prophesied of. There was one who would come before the Messiah, the Deliverer. And so they were disciples of John the Baptist. They were still waiting for the one that John proclaimed. They were waiting for the the Messiah to arrive. And Paul, he, he teaches them, well, that he has arrived. With delight, he explains Jesus to them. I'm sure he walked through Jesus' death, resurrection, and the gift of the Holy Spirit to all those who repent and believe. And they heard, it says, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In the name. We say that phrase a lot when we pray, in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. We sang about the name of Jesus. What a beautiful name it is. 
There's power in the name of Jesus. What is this phrase about? In the name, it speaks of authority and power of the one that we are speaking of. It's with the full backing of. So when I come in the name of somebody, right, if I want access to some place that, well, just, well, Darren can't get access to, but if I know somebody who has, who has the authority to get me behind, you know, maybe backstage or something or into a restaurant where I, want, where I want to eat. I know the manager. I know the owner. Oh, okay, come on in. In the name of Jesus. They were baptized in the name of Jesus, which means they surrendered to Jesus as the promised Savior, the one with all power and all authority. They submitted to Jesus' rule and to his control. They submitted to his love and mercy as well. And Paul laid his hands on them, and we see the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues, and they began prophesying or declaring great things about God, things that are true of God, mighty acts and praises of God. And apparently they did this in other languages they didn't know. And this seems weird to us, maybe, if you're reading this for the first time. But Luke, who's the author of Acts, is helping us, really, even by drawing our attention to that there were about 12 men, He's, he's, he's helping us see this, this happened before. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost when the disciples, that they were waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit was poured out in might and power and they began to prophesy and speak in tongues, languages they hadn't previously known, declaring uh, the glory of God. And people of that town of Jerusalem thought they were drunk, but they weren't drunk. They were empowered by the Spirit. And here we see the same thing happening. The Spirit is still at work. The Spirit is at work. And we should expect followers of Jesus to experience the presence and the power of the Spirit when they put their faith in Jesus. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we receive the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. There is not a two-tiered Christianity. There, There is not those who have the Spirit and those who do not have the Spirit. When you put your faith and your trust in Jesus, you receive the power to witness and the power to live out the Christian life. You do. Now remember, and we could talk about this all day, but remember, this is a city that that boasts in powers of all kinds, especially dark powers of magic and the occult. And so it makes sense that we get this this little story, this little narrative about those in Ephesus who received the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to live out their life and to be a witness for Jesus. God's power, God's spirit is received by those who surrender to Jesus, who humbly submit to his rule and control. If you're thinking, how do I become a Christian? What is this... uh, What does this look like? It looks like surrender to Jesus. It looks like saying, okay, all right, Jesus, uh, I'm putting it all on the table. I I can't save myself. I can't rescue myself. I'm looking to you. I I surrender to you. I'm trusting him with your future, asking for forgiveness, repenting, owning up to your sinfulness and looking to his righteousness, his perfect provision of salvation and rescue out of sin and shame. It's surrender. Surrender. You're looking to him as savior. Have you done this? Have you done this? If you haven't, please don't don't delay. Do it today. Do it now. Even as I'm speaking, take a moment and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I surrender. Verse eight, we see that Paul then is boldly then reasoning about, interestingly, uh, Luke writes, the kingdom of God. 
He's reasoning about the kingdom of God, which again is another way of talking about um, what Jesus proclaimed. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. That was Jesus' message. Well, what's the kingdom of God all about? It's about the rule and reign of God through his son, Jesus, who is king, by the way, of this kingdom. And as we submit our lives to King Jesus, we find ourselves now in his kingdom, living under his rule and reign. This is about power and authority, and it's going somewhere. But some there who heard this proclamation, some Jews were stubborn, it says, and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way. So in early Christianity, Christianity was called the way. I think that's that's pretty cool. Paul moves on. Paul moves on from the synagogue to a local hall that I'm sure he rents in the afternoons. He he continues to teach in this local hall uh, for two years in the city of Ephesus. And this should tell us something, church, about the importance of faithful, consistent witness. Paul doesn't just blow in and blow out. This is like dig your heels in and stay put for a while. This is like do the hard work of just consistently uh, opening up God's word and sharing what is true for those who are in your city. It's beautiful. It doesn't say it here, but we, we learn, um, you've, you've probably seen the letter of Colossians in the New Testament. Well, Ephesus and Colossae were, were not far from each other, and we learn later that Epaphras uh, most likely brought what he heard in Ephesus to Colossae. And, and so he shared with the Colossians the truth about Jesus because he heard it in Ephesus. We learn that the entire region uh, was, was hearing and receiving this message because Ephesus was like a hub. And then next we're given this snapshot a little sampling of the type of ministry that was happening in Ephesus along with this teaching ministry. And number two, what we see is this ministry is filled with conflict. There is conflict everywhere, but God's power is displayed over every other power. So we started with looking at surrender, right? Surrender to the authority and power of Jesus. And then we see conflict. Ministry in Ephesus looked like conflict, but God was doing extraordinary miracles, we learn. There were extraordinary powers being displayed through Paul. Verse 12, it's unusual, isn't it? I mean, handkerchiefs and aprons that were were touching Paul, then being brought to others and seeing people healed and set free from evil spirits. I mean, that's unusual. This isn't something that Paul like thought about and and said, okay, that's what I want to do. Yeah, that sounds really cool. That'll be fun. No, God did this. God did this. And God did it for the Ephesians who were swimming in a land of magical spells and incantations. They were swimming in a world of demonic influence and power. I think God is, there's contextualization happening here. I think he's speaking their language in many ways. But what does this display? It displays Power over sickness. Who's power over sickness? God's. Power over diseases. Power over evil spirits. And, and Jesus' power over these forces that have bound people for long enough. People are being set free. And when I say power over evil spirits, you might be uh, here today and you think, man, Darren, you, you just went too far. Evil spirits? Come on now. Did I go too far? Listen, we live in a melting pot of ideas here in the beautiful city of St. Pete, a melting pot of beliefs. 
I received an email uh, to an event that was, uh, it's for uh, creatives and local businesses, and this event invited me uh, to uh, meet with a witch. Not just me, but everyone who would go to this event. We will have a real witch, they said there, who will read tarot cards and discuss your future with you, and they were so excited. They were bragging about it, boasting about it, and inviting the whole uh, group into this, unashamedly. Our city isn't shy when it comes to the spiritual realm. The Bible is not shy about the fact that there are forces at work, angelic and demonic forces at work behind the scenes. We see it in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, evil forces being called out for who they are and what they are. And so check this out. A while later, Paul eventually writes to the Ephesian church, and that's the book of Ephesians. And what does he write? He writes all about power and authority. But look with me in Ephesians chapter 6 and what he says about these evil forces. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, our fight is not against flesh and blood. And so it pains me when I look at social media and I see people fighting over things that they shouldn't be fighting over arguing about things that like really do you see what's behind this our fight is not against flesh and blood and our greatest weapon is surrender to jesus our greatest weapon against the forces of evil forces of darkness the powers of darkness is humble submission to the power of jesus in verses 13 through 16 we're introduced now to an itinerant Jewish exorcists. And we're like, wait, what? Why not, right? We're in, we're in Ephesus. I mean, why not? It speaks to the syncretism that existed in this city, this combining of various beliefs into one. They would just try, these, these traveling itinerant Jewish exorcists would just try whatever works. So, so here's a man with seven sons who's in the business of exorcism, And so just imagine the volume of oppression and possession happening in this city, that there's actually like a business that you can have doing this. And he takes the name of Jesus and he throws it into his bag of tricks. He had heard Paul, undoubtedly he had heard Paul preach and he had seen miracles happening at the name of Jesus. And so he takes the name of Jesus and he throws it into his bag of tricks. He's attempting to use the name of Jesus for his own purposes without first submitting to the authority and power of Jesus himself. And so this man has exercised power to manipulate and control spiritual forces before. So why not the name of Jesus as well? Because Jesus isn't an add-on. Jesus, Jesus isn't ours to control. Jesus isn't ours to manipulate. Jesus isn't ours to use. And so, they, they come to drive out this demon, or the demon drives them out instead. A little bit of humor here. They get the snot beat out of them, all eight of them, and they are stripped naked and sent out running. 
And the text says that they were mastered, that the the demon-possessed man mastered all of them and overpowered them. This unsuccessful exorcism leads to a huge revival in the city. Why? Let's read about it again. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The event went viral. (laughs) Everyone heard about it. Fear fell upon all of them. Did you hear? The pros. The pros went in and tried to deliver this man from an evil spirit. They couldn't do it. They tried to manipulate the situation. They tried to use the name of Jesus, and they got the snot beat out of them, and they they were stripped naked. If the pros can't do it, then what about us? If if this itinerant exorcist can't, can't wield the power to free this man of this evil spirit, then what, what's that mean for us? Great fear sees them. What do we do? But also, I believe the fear of the Lord Jesus seized them. You see, our life, we, we are called to, to fear the Lord. We're called to fear him and to love him. And I believe that as we, we live faithfully, a life of devotion to the Lord, that there's a fear and a love of the Lord that should be the foundation of our lives. When we walk in, in, in purely this idea that, oh, God is love. He lets me just kind of just do whatever I want and live however I want. Wait a minute, how are you defining love? Right, so, and then, but then if we're, all we're doing is cowering in fear and, and, and afraid of judgment. No, we're not afraid of judgment. When we come to faith in Jesus, we, we stand in awe of the one, the only one, who could free us from the powers of darkness, who could forgive us of our sin, the only one who has all power and all authority. We're talking about creator God who keeps our hearts beating, who gives us breath in our lungs. And so, yeah, I should stand in awe. I should fear him. He's not my bro. He's my Lord. But he loves me, and I love him. Fear fell upon them. What happens next? People of Ephesus realized something was going on. A power they hadn't encountered before. The name of Jesus was being extolled, exalted, instead of being used. The authority and the power of Jesus was being held high and seen for what it really is. In verse 18, many who were already believers or who had just become believers uh, had been giving themselves secretly to other powers. They come out. These people come out confessing and divulging their practices. This is really, really beautiful. This is repentance. This is revival. This is renewal. This is humble submission to the authority of Jesus. Those who had put their faith and their hope in Jesus, but they start to come out and say, listen, I, I was hiding some things. I was hiding behind some other things. I was giving myself, I was flirting with certain powers that I shouldn't have been flirting with. And now here they are. Here they are. I'm coming out with it. 
They come forward to make a clean break with the past, a decisive break from the stuff they were dabbling in and flirting with. Do you need to do that today? Where have you been okay with compromise? Where have you been okay with secret sin? Where have you been okay with syncretism, the blending of Christianity, of your Christian faith with other practices? Just saying you embrace Jesus, but allowing other things just to, to come in as if they're nothing more than just a lifestyle choice. So what's it matter? They're, oh, they're unconnected to my allegiance to Jesus. No, they are not. Your lifestyle choices are not unconnected to your allegiance to Jesus. And so here we have confession. We have surrender. We have them forsaking things that they once held on dearly to. Do you need to do that today? It's a safe place to do it, you know. We all have had to do it and will continue to have to do it as the Lord puts his finger on areas of our life like, oh, oh, that area too, Lord. And as we walk and as we grow and as we mature, oh, oh, that area too. Oh, in that area that no one knows about, no, no one knows about and I'm ashamed of, what am I gonna do if I come out with that? What are people gonna think of me? Are we willing to surrender? Verse 19, specifically those who practiced magic arts. They brought their books, their scrolls filled with sorcery and spells, and they burned them, which signifies, this is what it signifies. This is why they burned them. You got no power over me. Whatever spell, whatever power you used to have, it's gone. You got no power over me. And I don't want these scrolls and these books ending up in anyone else's hands. And they did it in the sight of all. They went public with it. So those who led the way in the practice of, of dark magic, of the occult, and their participants, so those who had charms, you know, these little magical spells rolled up and placed within lockets or cylinders hanging around their neck, scrolls, books, whatever it was, whatever they were placing their faith in, they, they brought it. They brought it, and they said, enough, we're burning this. And this is significant. This isn't just like, you know, five or ten people. This is a lot of people. These books that they were bringing to burn, these scrolls, they promised power over nature, diseases, and demons. Okay? Like, we've, these aren't just like my, my favorite books that I shouldn't look at. These are like, this is what my, this is what my, my, my hope is in, or was in, to, to heal me, to set me free. To promise me a, a good future to take care of my family. But now I'm seeing that these are dark powers that really are no powers at all, or what power they have isn't the true extraordinary power. It, it's, it's, it's counterfeit. And I've been bound to it. It's not my freedom, it's my bondage. And they're saying, Here, enough. What did that require? It required a willingness to walk away from what once defined them. It required a willingness to give up what once brought security and protection and success and power. To give up magic, sorcery, was to give up control. Control. This is about control. This is about power. Are we willing to surrender? Why were they willing to do it? Because they saw the difference between the real and the fake. They saw the difference between what was counterfeit and what was legit. They experienced true freedom. 
Verse 20 is a summary of what took place, like an exclamation point on the revival that was taking place. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, exclamation point. God's extraordinary power is on display, healing and delivering and convicting and leading people to repentance and salvation and revival, bringing them out of things that they once were finding hope in and promise in and security and rest in that were, were really just lies. Come out of that. The word of the Lord prevailed. It increased mightily. Line them up. Line up the powers of Ephesus. Line up the powers of St. Pete. Line them up. There's no demon. Oh, there's no magic. There's no power that even comes close to the rivaling, to rivaling the power of Jesus. There is no power that comes close to rivaling the power of Jesus. Line them up. Line them up. Finally, we see protest. You bet there'll be protest. You bet there'll be a fight to hold on to inferior powers and imaginary control. And that's what we see here just rolling out in the verses, uh, the rest of the verses of this chapter. We're not going to read them all. I don't want to sum it up for you. What happened was these magic arts in the worship of Artemis, Diana, they went hand in hand. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Imagine the influence, the cultural influence of Artemis over the people of Ephesus. This was part of the fabric of Ephesian culture. So the message about Jesus was beginning to make a financial impact. It was starting to, to mess with their way of life. And this silversmith who made idols, his name is Demetrius, he's called out and he's, he starts to see this. He says, hey, listen, this message about Jesus, this, this proclamation of the way, oh, it's messing with our way of life. It's affecting us financially. He saw what happened with all those books being brought and the amount of money that it added up to. It's a huge amount of money. He says, this is in, beginning to impact us financially. This is our identity that they're messing with. How dare them? How dare them come in here and threaten us and bring us into a state of instability? They're messing with everything we're about, everything we are. And it caused a great stir in the city. They, he gathered his other silversmith idol makers and they started to yell great is artemis of the ephesians great is artemis of the ephesians and it led to a frenzy and a panic and, and a rush into the amphitheater which could seat twenty-five thousand people see the city had great pride in its heritage great pride in the story of artemis before long the theater is filled up in church for two hours there is this rhythmic chant this anger that grows. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! They yell with their fists thrown in the air. Paul wants to get in there and say something, and his companions who are higher up in government, they're like, no, are you crazy? You're going to get like torn apart. After two hours, the city clerk finally calms everyone down and says, listen, you all are really risking a riot here, and you know how Rome looks at that. You need to go home. Here is the desperate cry of a defeated goddess for two hours. Here is the desperate cry of a community trying to hold on to their lifestyle, to an inferior power, and to imaginary control. A desperate cry. 
Today, no one worships Artemis, but Jesus is exalted across the globe. In between surrender to the Spirit of God, the power of God, and protest is conflict. And the conflict is real, and the conflict is now. The conflict is here. Are you ready? You ready to surrender to Jesus? It's, it's time. It's time to forsake. It's time to renounce. It's time to confess. It is time to surrender. Maybe you need to make a decisive break with the past or from something that you've been dabbling in and flirting with. Do you see it? Do you see the extraordinary power of Jesus? Do you see what happens when these powers we've been leaning on for security and for rest magical, cultural, religious, whatever powers they might be, do you see what happens when those powers come face to face with the extraordinary power of Jesus? Do you see it? What happens? What happens when these powers, these lesser powers, these counterfeit powers come face to face with the power of Jesus? What happens? Freedom happens. Deliverance happens. And so, what's an appropriate response to this? Wherever you are in your faith, wherever you are, the appropriate response whether we want to become a Christian or whether we want to move forward as Christians, is surrender. You feel the oppression, you feel the weight, you feel the fight, you feel the conflict of dark forces? I do. What's the answer? Surrender. Surrender to a power that cannot be rivaled. Surrender to a power that has delivered me from sin and shame. Surrender to a power that promises me eternal life. Surrender to a power that is more than able to see me through my present circumstance. Surrender to a power that can give me grace to face the worst sin that I've been wrestling with. Surrender to a power that will give me the grace to face the shame that is with those things that I bring out and help me to lay all of my fears and shame down and find rest in him. Surrender, church. That's how we need to move forward. Let let me pray for us. Father, surrender feels so weak to us, but it's it's the most powerful expression of, of worship, of adoration that we can bring you. And it's as we surrender our lives to you that you show yourself faithful again and again and again. Help us to see that surrender repentance, forsaking those things that we think will satisfy, forsaking those things that we think we will find control and power in, that that surrendered to you, to your extraordinary power, is our freedom and joy. Help us to see that, to believe it, and to live it. In Jesus' name.